Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. Alice Brini has spent her professional life studying the world's property markets. As the global head of research for TH Real Estate, the task of predicting property trends has never been more challenging. With the advent of technology, like autonomous vehicles and online commerce, having profound and sometimes unexpected implications for real property. Alice heads a team of analysts whose research spans the diverse economies of Europe, the United States and Asia-Pacific. She draws further context from her membership of the Investment Property Forum, the Society of Property Researchers, and the International Council of Shopping Centres. But her love of property all started by studying geography at the University of Southampton in the United Kingdom. Alice, welcome to Melbourne. Thank you. Property for Australians is one of those asset classes that has a strong psychological attachment. A lot of people feel like, you know, property is one of those things that you can see and touch and will never go down in value, but it is an industry that's ripe for disruption. How do you view the potential for disruption in the property markets around the world? Um, I think you're right about everyone, you know, feeling an affinity with real estate. It's something you can touch and feel. And ultimately, real estate is about the interaction of people with the built environment. So we all live in it. We all use it. And probably more than we realize. I think we probably spend 90% of our waking hours in a piece of real estate. But the point about disruption is really important. And I think that we can't be complacent about um, our needs for real estate remaining the same. You can argue in theory that, you know, demand for real estate or the need for real estate is less. You know, we don't have to go to a shopping mall to do do our shopping. We don't have to go to an office to do our work. But um, the truth is people do like to be together. But that piece of real estate has got to offer a good experience and a reason for people being there. So we talk a lot about relevance when we're thinking about real estate. What's the relevance of this, um, of this property? But disruption is ripe. I mean, I'm sure it's impacting lots of industries, but we're very mindful of... Um, disintermediation in real estate so there are a lot of people um, that we would call sort of in the operating space so whether it's we work co-living operators who are trying to disrupt the relationship that traditional landlord has with the end user and what about technology and all of that so even things like autonomous vehicles for example so making parking lots redundant for example or the way in which buildings themselves operate that sort of internet of things how does that play out from your perspective? I think technology is will have the biggest impact on demand for real estate and the way we use real estate. I think, you know, there've been some, you know, there's been lots of verse about the impact of online shopping on retailing and shopping centers, and I think we can we can see that's happening and we're dealing with it. But I think there are a lot of other things. I think autonomous vehicles, driverless trucks, they will have a big impact on the way we move around cities, uh, the relevance of car parks, you look at, you know, a huge amount of income is, is generated from shopping malls is generated by car parks. Now, you know, you could argue that that's income that's going to disappear, but I think smart operators will recognise that we could do something more productive with that space that is currently being used as car parks when it's no longer needed. I think you could argue that people can move around more efficiently. I think it'll have a big impact on logistics and distribution of goods um, through driverless trucks, which will mean we're no longer constrained to how many hours a driver is allowed to work for. 
You've talked in the past about the need to look at building a property portfolio through the lens of the city that the building is resident in. What makes for a great city on a global stage and what are some of your you know, favourite cities? Yeah, I think that's really important actually and the source of the starting point for all our high-level strategic advice is around cities. So it's not so much about which countries we like, it's about identifying which cities within those countries will remain relevant and prove resilient through the next market cycle. So what we see in most developed economies is we anticipate a greater share of GDP or output being diverse through a smaller number of cities. So those are the ones we want to uh, be invested in. Now, we probably think really about um, demographic megatrends in determining what makes a great city. So, you know, urbanisation naturally means cities are growing. So we would like to invest in those cities that are, are getting bigger. Um, but you also need to be very mindful that there's the sort of right sort of political will in place, the infrastructure in place that means those cities can grow successfully. Um, but we think a lot about, you know, the reasons that people want to live and work in a city. And it's not just about size and scale. So traditionally, real estate investors look at the large, liquid, global gateway cities. Indeed, those are great cities. And what would be examples of those gateway cities? Oh, so they would be... Um, Tokyo, New York, London, Paris, Los Angeles. And then the ones that we think are interesting, actually, are what people might call tier two cities, second cities, that perhaps they're not competing on the global stage for global HQs. Um, they're competing regionally. And they're cities that tend to score very well on quality of life, sustainability, connectivity, you know, softer factors that relate to livability and likability. And these tend to be the cities that a lot of occupiers are, are, are looking for representation in um, based on the fact that the talent wants to live there. So it's a bit um, chicken and egg. So sometimes we'll argue, does the presence of a big tech giant make that a desirable place to live? And like Microsoft we'll see, in Seattle, yeah. for example. Yeah. And is that driving inward migration? Or actually, is the inward migration that was already happening because of other reasons the reason for the presence of that, that tech HQ? And what are some of the cities in that sort of second tier below that gateway city that you feel you know worth watching so seattle as you mentioned austin texas gets cited a lot um and we need to come up with another another city to which are both tech about. centers really they are yeah. tech centers in europe it'd be you know more like a, a copenhagen or berlin amsterdam istanbul was on your radar for a while and Presumably, as you say, that political overlay is quite important. And I suppose you could mm -hmm. say the same for London or Manchester yeah. or some of the big English cities with Brexit. How do you integrate some of those political uncertainties into building a portfolio of real estate assets? It's very important. So it comes in for us at two levels. So when we are looking, you know, when we're sort of, we do a global cities filtering, which determine those cities we, we, we like. And there is a political filter there where we take out... Um, Cities that are within any countries that we think don't have adequate um, political um, or economic stability. Um, so cities in developing economies tend to, to, to come out there. Um, we then have, so you mentioned London and Manchester. They have sort of more shorter-term political challenges, uh, you know, in this case around Brexit. So we wouldn't um, omit um, those UK cities from our European strategy, for example, because of Brexit. 
But what we, we layer on top of our, our city's advice is much more tactical analysis, which is about short-term performance. Um, and, you know, the political uncertainty there will have an impact on short-term performance of those markets. So therefore, we might say, you know, we want it in the universe, but perhaps, you know, Manchester isn't right for investing in today. For you personally, how did you become involved in... Yeah, it's such an interesting area in terms of deep research into property as investments. I mean, I think like a lot of people in property, it was sort of by accident. I was always interested in the built environment and geography, always interested in places, very interested in people. And I don't ever suppose I, I realised that a career existed in this. You take for granted that the built environment is there and it works. And... I did geography at university and I particularly was drawn by the human geography and the economic geography and I recognised that sort of, you know, it, and I, I left university not knowing exactly what I wanted to do or where it would take me and I found out about a, a master's course in real estate which I signed up for and then that summer I got um, a job working in London for a small property consultancy and I loved it so much I stayed there and didn't, didn't do the... Um, didn't do the masters in the end. You have built your career ostensibly with one organisation yes, almost. Yes. So the H in TH is for yes. Henderson, and yeah. you've grown with Henderson as it's grown. What's that experience been like being with one organisation? Because I think a lot of us, when we think about building a career, you think, well, I'll need to go somewhere else to get different experience. And you've taken a different path. Yeah, I agree. And I'm quite cognizant when I tell someone I've been with the same organisation for 17 years. That may not sound terribly ambitious. I've been very fortunate that, you know, when I joined there in 2001, it was pretty much, well, the real estate um, piece of what was Henderson Global Investors was very much UK focused. Um, And I very much enjoyed cutting my real estate teeth there but very soon we expanded into Europe and so my role became bigger and then we started becoming much more global and then when we formed um, the merger with TIA and became TH Real Estate we became truly global um, and um, so the job has just just grown and I've been very fortunate that you know we've gone from being sort of managing internal money money to managing much more external money so you spend a lot of time with, with clients there designing products for them. Um, and, you know, it continues, continues to evolve that way. And for you personally, being the head of research globally, sitting in London with a lot of your organisation in the US, what's that like having that transatlantic responsibility? It's been, um, I mean, most of the time it's thoroughly enjoyable. Um, there's a lot of travel involved. There's a lot of understanding cultures. There's a lot of, you know, sometimes still feel like we need a translator in the room because they're using terminology that we, we don't understand. Are there any specific examples culturally where your background makes it difficult sometimes to understand the cultural um, setting that your US colleagues take for granted? I wouldn't say there's anything that's um, terribly challenging. It's arguing about whether you spell words (laughs) with a Z at the end or an S and things like that. But no, I mean, bringing two organisations together that are culturally quite different is, is, is challenging. But the nice thing I thought for us is that we had two very different businesses, you know, one clearly North American, one European, both with big aspirations to grow in Asia Pacific. Um, in the case of the US, very much about managing internal money, ours about managing um, external money, um, but not having the balance sheet 
to perhaps bring clients along with us. So actually, it was a it was a really good marriage with you know, and I think we've brought together the the, the best of two two quite different organisations. And in terms of managing a team, so presumably you can't be across every tiny little piece of the granular detail, so you rely on a team of people to do that for you. How do you find managing a research team? Well, I'm very fortunate with the team I have. Um, I mean, the nice thing with research, you tend to divide it up, so most people have regional or sector specialisms, so it's quite clear what they need to, to get on with, and people in the organisation, so their stakeholders internally know who to come to so the team runs itself fairly well I think I'm you know I'm very fortunate that um, research is is very well respected and regarded within our organization so I think you know a lot of the individuals doing research where in other organizations that it may be seen as more of a support function you know glorified librarians I've heard us called in the past um, but actually everyone is very client-facing they're visiting markets and assets all the time so actually you know I might be going back to London next week and thinking great I'll spend some time with the team and then discover that they're all over Europe. <laughs> well and a lot of particularly the North American money is, is retirement money so yes. pension money so presumably communicating effectively must be part of the role of you and your team and that sort of fiduciary responsibility to do a good job. Yeah. How do you feel about the weight of that for you and your team? Well for me actually I it's the effective communication of the research that I'm really passionate about and I think all the value is there so you can do the very very best academic research but if you can't communicate it in a way that the audience is is willing to hear it um, then it's sort of wasted so I think all the value is in the last mile of delivery and I think this is really important so I think you know that it's there is some pressure there on that, you know, and I think, you know, we are expected to give quite strong views sometimes. Um, you know, we are expected to, you know, be, be have a strong voice internally if we think we, we're doing something we shouldn't be. And, you know, at this time in the market, it's challenging underwriting some deals. So everyone in the team, you know, they're, they're pretty tough. Um, with their their internal customers, if you like, um, but there's lots of external communication as well, and you know it's managing our existing investors' expectations as for you know short term performance, longer term performance, but you know all the time talking to new clients about new products as well. As you've built your career, is there a piece of advice or some pieces of advice you've received that have been really helpful? I'm sure there have been lots and I've been fortunate to work with lots of great people that have given me, you know, and people give you different advice based on their experience, but I think it's enjoy your job. And I have been very fortunate that I've been able to craft a role that works for me. So I'm doing the pieces of the job I enjoy. And, you know, it's a really sort of cheesy cliche thing to say, but I think, you know, if you enjoy your work, you're not doing a day's work. Um, So, yeah. That's an easy thing to say, and you know it's not to say that you know it's it, it, it's thoroughly enjoyable every single minute of every single day. But if the majority of the time you're really enjoying it and you want to go to work, then that's a great thing. And I think if you can find, you know, I remember someone saying to me, "You've got to learn to see your commuters your own time or productive time rather than just something." I remember someone saying that to me, and um, you know, just taking that time to read things, to you know, making it your own time. Presumably that is, depending on where you live in the world, the harder or easier to do. But you yeah. know, um, in cities that have fabulous public transport, presumably that is a little bit easier. Have there been resources for you that you either continue to go back to or that are really helpful, so books or podcasts or studies that you've 
really found pivotal in, in leveraging your career success? We've had various, you know, our organisation being pretty good at coaching and training. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't think there's anything I go back to, but I think never stop trying to learn more, never become complacent. I think, you know, there's no harm in sort of just pushing yourself and testing yourself and, you know, going on a refresher presentation course, whatever it may be. And when you are keeping up to date, you know, on the tube, that commute time type stuff, what are the go-to resources that, you know, help you understand the world? It's the usual newspapers. Funnily enough, I find that I'm going less to the traditional sort of property gazette type um, and, you know, reading more about technology and more about people these days. And actually uh, looking at, spend a lot more time reading things that are written by people outside our industry. And that's become very apparent. You know, you mentioned disruption earlier. And I think just talking about real estate to other real estate folk is not very helpful. So I do spend my time reading things from outside the presumably there there feels like there's the pressure to be across everything you know as you say the scope of research is almost unlimited right from sort of climate change all the way through to you know political machinations how do you switch off and make sure that you stay fresh and that you're not trying to be on all the time yeah well I think it's just good to know that not everyone knows everything and I think you realize that you know especially when you've got the whole world to look at, you can't swat up on everything for a meeting, um, you know, on the chance that someone might ask you. And I think sometimes you've just got to be prepared to say, I don't know, or not be afraid to say that. Um, but then I just think, yeah, other, and your head can just become like it's going to explode with so much information. And I think actually sometimes just literally switching off. And if you can do that, not everyone can do that easily um, every evening, but you'll wake up in the morning and realise you know a lot more than you thought you did before you went to bed last night. And do you have a particular mechanism that you use to switch off? Oh, it could be anything from, you know, <laughs> really naff box sets to um, meditation. So, I've, you know, more recently, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, I- interesting in real estate, how important mindful and well- mindfulness and well-being is. And, you know, I read all about this and think, oh, I'm not really <laughs> doing that myself. So I've been doing a bit of that um, in the evenings lately, which has been really good. And any other w- wellness advice for someone who, you know, operates at, you know, the, a global um, world-class level like yourself? Any, any other advice? in that wellness space? I mean, I think when you travel a lot, you've got to get sleep where you can. Um, you know, so I sort of program myself when you get on an airplane now just to try and, um, you know, get to sleep as soon as you can rather than, oh, there's a movie I've not seen, <laughs> you know. Um, I think exercise is really good and it sometimes feels like the hardest thing to do, but, you know, and I, I'm no athlete, but, um, you know, a 20-minute swim can make you feel a world difference of whether it's, you know, helping you overcome jet lag or whether it's just clearing your mind. When you think about career success, you know, what are the elements that, that you would recommend to others in terms of having a really fulfilling career other than seeking out a job that you like? What are, what are the other building blocks that you think are really essential? It is building blocks and I think you talk to some very young people and they want the whole world straight away. I think you've got you've got to work hard and you've got to go through certain um, steps to get to leadership level. I think that you've just got to, in your early stage of your career, not be afraid to ask. Um, everyone talks about leaning in, but do. You know, I hear people who say well, I wasn't asked about that or I didn't get considered. And I'll say, well, did you put your hand up? Um, And if you don't put your hand up, you can't expect to be um, uh, considered for certain certain things. 
I think, you know, don't feel like you've been, you know, I think there's always opportunities to move away. So don't feel like you're stuck in something just because that's where you started out. I think a lot more organisations are open-minded to people moving, um, you know, across departments. It doesn't have to just be an upward movement. Um, but I also think, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, it's, it's about helping other people succeed as well. Um, you know, and I think that's how you ultimately will get success if you can let other people grow around you and under you. Yeah, there's a great book, Ryan Holiday's book, The Ego is the Enemy, and it's all about um, how if you create success for other people, success actually yes. is bestowed on you. My old boss also used to have a saying, I think it was Churchill, um, where saying there's no limit to what you can achieve if you don't care who gets the credit. And I think that's probably true, and it probably feels very frustrating in the moment if someone else would appear to be getting credit for something you've done, but... If you can just keep persevering in that environment, then... It comes back to you in spades. Yeah. When you think about the future, firstly, what are the things that, you know, worry or concern you, either as an investor or, or as a human being? Well, probably as an investor and a human being, I think it has to be this technology. <laughs> it comes back to technology again. You know, there are just some alarming things that going on that, that scare me on a personal level. And I think, wow, that in is... In terms of privacy and... In, well, in terms of privacy, I mean, I look at my eight-year-old son and what he's accessing on the internet and using Alexa to do his homework. I mean, it, it's kind of funny, but it, it's scary at the same time. And then I guess as an investor, you know, I just worry that are people really understanding how important this is and the ramifications it might have for our industry and I think it's happening at such a pace that I think some people probably think well I'll be retired by then I think if we think something might happen in 10 or 20 years I bet it'll be here in five years so I worry about um you know the over I believe I genuinely believe in um the need for real estate in the future but I think that the way we underwrite it, the way we value it has to change. People have to be more open-minded. I think we're going to have to take a more intuitive approach to investing uh, because the traditional, me traditional measures of um, performance or success won't be relevant for the future. Well, and presumably intelligent machines can do a lot of the grunt work that would normally be done in terms of establishing the criteria that, that mm. might be the base level analysis, but it's the human beings that have that intuitive overlay to really yes. decide. Oh, I think, you know, I think the perfect collaboration between people and technology is the key to success because I think that, you know, there's a limit. There's a lot that robots will do. I think there'll be a lot of jobs. I don't just mean real estate that will become um, automated um, but I think that, um, yeah, you know, creativity and innovation will be really important. So I think that ultimately comes from, from humans. So the flip side of that question, when you look to the future, what are the things that really excite you and that you feel positive about? Well, I'm excited by these changes as well, because as a researcher, actually, um, you know, things that come to challenges and disruptors make our jobs far more interesting. I'm really enjoying the, you know, enjoying looking at technology, enjoying understanding consumer behaviour more rather than the analysis of rents and yields and, and vacancy rates. I'm excited by how global our industry is becoming. Um, I'm excited by, um, yeah, just all the change that, that's coming about that will keep my job interesting, I hope. Final question. You travel a lot. You're a real estate expert. What's your favourite city in the world? Well, it sounds like I'm just saying this. Melbourne is one of my favourite cities. I mean, yesterday we had the most amazing dinner and walking down Flinders. It's just beautiful. Um, and I can really feel 
Um, I mean, it's funny enough, I was just reading yesterday that I think for the first time Vienna has knocked Melbourne off the top spot for places to live. Um, so, but anyway, I'm, I'm not surprised that Melbourne's held that top spot for very long. I would say second favourite would be Singapore and third would probably be San Francisco. Well, that's interesting. Thank you for citing Melbourne as your favourite. You can come back any time. <laughs> Thank you, I will. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.